Well, do open your Bibles, uh, page 260, if you're using the Church Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to resume our studies in Samuel this morning. Before we turn to that, uh, you'll notice from the bulletin that there are, uh, we're in the process of applying for zoning changes in relation to the new building, uh, the building that we're hoping to buy on Spruce Street, and we need you to sign a petition. I think I was supposed to ask you more politely than that. But we really need you to sign a petition, and you can do that in uh, what Will calls the front of the church. He calls it the back, but that's the front of the church, in the narthex, uh, or in behind me here in reception hall, which is the downstairs part, uh, and uh, there are various opportunities for you to sign that petition there. That would be very helpful. Well, we come back after a hiatus over the summer to the story of David as it's told in the book of Samuel and uh, to this chapter that we read earlier today. Did you know this, that the Bible, Scripture, is only concerned with David as a king? The very time we, first time we're introduced to David in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is when Samuel the prophet is making his way to Bethlehem to anoint a king. We don't know anything about David until two verses before he is actually anointed by Samuel as king. There's no birth narrative. There is no hint about his life, uh, his childhood, his growing up. Uh, there is no prophetic announcement to his parents or his grandparents about him particularly. David simply doesn't come onto the scene until the anointing oil has been on his head. He comes fully prepared, as it were, steps onto the scene of history. He is the king. He is the Lord's anointed. He is the Messiah, David. And that's all that Scripture is only interested in about David. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is now the undisputed king. All of his enemies have been defeated. The land of Israel has been unified and extended until it fills the borders promised to Abraham centuries before. Jerusalem is now his capital city. He's established there and the Ark of the Covenant is there. And the worship of God is increasingly being concentrated, concentrated there. With God's help, yes, as I have said, he's defeated all his enemies. But above all, God has established with David an everlasting covenant. Covenant is a form of agreement based on a promise, and often with threats, but a promise sometimes with an oath, always done as an act of kindness. And God has promised to David that his descendants will build a house. For him, for the Lord, and that the Lord will build a house for David. And there we have one of the big conundrums, really. What is this house? David wants to build a house for God, and by that he means he wants to build God, God a temple in which God can live. God's address on earth will be a temple that David will build. That's David's mind. God says, no, David, I want to build you a house, and by that I don't mean build you a palace, uh, because you've already done that, David. I want to build you a house of people. I want to build you descendants, a family, a dynasty, David. 
And that's just the beginning of the confusion. Because as God goes on to promise David, he says, one of your descendants will establish his house forever. It will not come to an end. It will last forever. That is his dynasty house. And he will build a house for me. Now immediately, if you know your Bible, you'll think, well, that's Solomon. Solomon builds a temple of bricks and mortar. He builds a temple for God. He does. But it becomes very clear as you read the narrative that Solomon is not it. Solomon is not the one. And that physical temple in Jerusalem isn't the final temple. There is one coming who is both going to build a house for God, a temple, and at the same time build a dynasty, that is, build a house of people who are brought into and, in fact, ultimately, become part of that temple house for God. Now that's why, for those of you who were here over the summer, we spent our hiatus looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, because there in 1 Peter chapter 2 we learn two things. We learn that Jesus is the final temple, and that Jesus is building a temple comprised of not only himself, remember he said to the people of his day, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again, but he is adding to his temple, he is building his temple with people. Peter calls them living stones. He says, now think of a house of people, a royal house, a dynasty. Think of a house that God is building to dwell in. And now put them both together. God is building a temple that is a living, vibrant, growing temple. As more and more people come into a relationship with God and are being built as living stones. Those are the words that Peter uses. Living stones into a temple for God. Confused yet? You just merge those two ideas together in the fulfillment of them. Now, my, my big question is this. God is going to do that through King Jesus. He's doing it now in Jesus and the church, which is the temple, the final temple of God. But is there a clue, is there a hint, is there an indication in the story of David of this growing house that God is going to give to him. And I think in this story, we have the answer. Because in this story, we have a chapter, a story, and a, a little insight into the king's kindness towards the house of his enemy. That really is what this chapter is about. The king's kindness to the house of his enemy. And we read about the basis of his kindness and the object of his kindness, and the measure of his kindness. What is the basis of the king's kindness? Let's look at verse 1 together. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now this very question here is a surprising question about a surprising kindness. The house of Saul stands for everything that was in the way of David achieving God's purpose. The house of Saul stood for opposition over about 20 years, where David was the outlaw and he was being hounded for his life. The house of Saul spelt bad news to the house of David. And even after he inherits the throne of Judah, it's the house of Saul that leads the insurgency against David from the ten northern tribes. The house of Saul is bad news 
Yet here is David in this surprising act of kindness, proposing to show kindness to someone of the house of Saul. Now the Hebrew word is the word chesed. And that word means, uh, well, well, it's used three times in the passage. Let me tell you that. First of all, in verse three, one, verse 1, verse 3, and verse 7, it means faithfulness, loyalty, and kindness that flows out of a covenant relationship with someone. So at the heart of the word chesed, wherever you see it used in the Bible, it always has covenantal implications. We used that word earlier today. If it's not a word you're familiar with, if you're a Christian from another church and you don't know what the word covenant means, you don't, just don't know your Bible. So I'm glad you're here. If you're, not, if you're not a Christian and you don't know the Bible, then you're okay. You're off the hook. You don't know your Bible. You're not a Christian. You're fine. You're okay. But the word covenant means an agreement based on a promise, very often with an oath, and very often it is driven by kindness. Now, interestingly, the English Standard Version translates this word chesed earlier on in the story by the expression in English, steadfast love. Now, I cannot for the life of me think. Some of you who know better than me will tell me later, I hope. In other words, don't shout out now because I'm, you know, I'll just stand on you if you do. But later, I want you to tell me why it is that every other time the word chesed is used in the ESV, it's translated steadfast love and kindness here. Because kindness is a bit weak, really. For example, what David is reflecting on here is the, the relationship, the covenant that was established between Jonathan and David way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. When Jonathan, you may remember that Jonathan is the, uh, he's the crown prince, he's the heir apparent to the throne of Israel, but he's a good man, he's a godly man, he realizes that his father has been disqualified by his godlessness as well as his unrighteousness, but primarily for his godlessness, he has been disqualified from being the ruler of Israel, and God is going to snatch away the throne from Saul. Jonathan recognizes that. But he also recognizes that David is the one that God has chosen to be the king of Israel. And Jonathan comes to David. We're told the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan comes to him and made a covenant with David. You can read about this in 1 Samuel 18. He makes a covenant with David and he hands over to David his robe and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. These were royal regalia, royal robe, royal armor, royal uh, weapons. He hands them over as a sign, one that he is deferring, although he's a crown prince, he's deferring to David as the future king. He is recognizing that David is the rightful king of Israel. But then he cements their relationship in a formal ceremony, a covenant relationship. He makes a covenant with David, we read, and he says to David, Show me the steadfast, the chesed love of the Lord, that I may not die, and do not cut off your chesed, your steadfast love, from my house forever. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. That's 1 Samuel 20, verses 7, 4 to 17. 
Now that is precisely, you notice, what is on David's mind. It is this covenanted kindness. So he's echoing Jonathan's words in verse 1. Is there anyone left that I may show him chesed for Jonathan's sake? And then in verse 3, that I may show the chesed, the kindness, the steadfast love of God to him. Jonathan says to David, you show me chesed and show me the Lord's chesed. David says, I want to show someone of Saul's house chesed and I want to show the Lord's chesed towards him. David is acting on the basis of the covenant relationship and the promises that were made. Because he had promised that he would never cut off the house of Saul forever. Now why is that significant to us? Well, it's significant to us because God had made a covenant promise to David. So Saul, uh, Jonathan and David were in a covenant relationship. But David is also in a covenant relationship with God in which God had said to David that he promised on oath to do something for David. He was going to establish David's house forever. There would be a descendant on David's throne who would reign forever. That descendant is King Jesus who sits on his father David's throne and he reigns forever in the power of an endless life. He is descended from David according to the flesh, and he has ascended to David's throne, which is the throne of God. King Jesus inherits the promise. And David believes God. And on the basis, as it were, of his faith in God's promise to him, he now fulfills his promise to Jonathan to keep his hand of blessing on the family of Jonathan forever. Now that's what's prompting. That's what's moving the king. The king is prompted by the covenantal promise. And when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to our relationship with God, God is moved, motivated, driven. All that he does for us is based and built on the promise that he made to our first parents outside the Garden of Eden that he would bring someone who would crush the devil. He's keeping his promise to Abraham that from Abraham's seed, from Abraham's seed would come one who would bring blessing to the whole world. He is keeping his promise repeated to the patriarchs that from the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah, would come one who would rule for the world's sake and the nations would come to him. David is acting on the basis of a promise. And God acts towards us on the basis of his covenanted promises, his steadfast love, his, his hesed towards us in Christ. But then secondly, look at the object of the king's kindness. The king said, is there not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the chesed of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now I want you to notice that begins at, that's said at the beginning of the story and at the end of the story. And if I forget to point out why later, remind me. Because there is a reason. So at both, side, both ends of the story, bracketing the story of this man, is this statement, he is lame in both his feet, crippled in both his feet. This man is a victim of his past. 
Let me tell you three things about this man. First of all, his family. He's the son of Jonathan, who's the son of Saul. It was his grandfather got him into this mess. His grandfather had been the king. His grandfather had been blessed by God. His grandfather had acted in a godless manner. His grandfather had taken to himself rights which were God's only to give. His grandfather had rebelled against God. His grandfather had taken the Eden that God had given him, Israel, and had squandered it by his disobedience. His grandfather had precipitated violent clashes, violent warfare between his people, the house of Saul, and the house of David, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. And it was in the process of running away from the Lord's anointed. It was in the process of fleeing from David, who is God's appointed man and appointed king, that this young man, Mephibosheth, as an infant, had been dropped by his nurse and had been crippled in both his feet so that he is now in the state he is in. His grandfather is to blame. What's happened to him has been precipitated by the disobedience of his grandfather. It's a sorry tale. And we find him now in this situation. We find him helpless. We find him Affected by sin, we find him belonging to the house of Saul. He is the enemy. He is the enemy of the Lord's anointed. And we can't help but think of ourselves. We are, we are where we are today in the world. We are here because our first father, Adam, sinned. And his sin has been credited to all of us. All of us are in the state we're in before God because of Adam's sin. And all of the other things that have happened to us, all of the injustices and indignities and the, the wars and the violence and the hurt and the pain that has been inflicted on the human race and the cancers you're suffering and the death you're going to die is the product of that first sin. We are here in the predicament we are in today because of our first father's sin. And above all, we, like this man, are incapable of moving towards God. We're helpless. And we are the enemy of God. And the good news of the gospel is, summed up in Romans 5, that it was while we were helpless, like this man, while we were sinners, like this man, while we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself in Christ, his family. Secondly, think about his infirmity. There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both his feet. He is a man who is entirely dependent on Ziba, this servant, this other guy, capable of, incapable of caring for himself, looking after himself. He is dependent on others. All a tragic result of the fall. And I want you to, to see that what he feels like. What, how does this leave this man? If you look at verse 8, you'll see he sees himself as less than human. Now, I hope if you have a disability, you don't feel like this, but I think there are circumstances in life that often afflict those with infirmities or disabilities of one kind or another that make the person feel dehumanized. Very often they are treated as such. Very often that's some of the after effects, aren't they? And we, we need to be sympathetic to our brothers and sisters in this 
position. But this is how he feels. He feels dehumanized by the fact that he cannot walk. He is crippled. And that's emphasized twice. And I ask the question, does God understand what that person feels like? Does God understand what Mephibosheth feels like? To be, feel like a dead dog. To be, feel less than human. And I think David saw the answer. David wrote it down in a psalm that the Lord Jesus reflected on as he's on the cross. And there on the cross, the Lord Jesus, as he is having the sins of his people placed upon him, as he is bearing sin and scoffing rude, there on that cross, Jesus is reflecting on the 22nd psalm in which the psalmist calls himself a worm and not a man that is not human. Because that's what sin does. Sin dehumanizes us. Sin, the pleasures of sin, don't make us more human. They make us less human than we are. Less like the image of God in which we were made. I thought I was using this baby here. It's not working. But you woke up, some of you. This man feeling like this. Reminds us of the predicament that our Lord Jesus found himself on the cross bearing the sins of his people. When he who knew no sin was made sin for us, he found out what it was like for this man, Mephibosheth, to say that he felt like, like he was a dead dog of a man, or the psalmist when he said he was a worm and not a man, disfigured on the cross, looking inhuman in the agony and writhing and pain. The Lord Jesus is dehumanized before the eyes of the world. As our sin bearer and our savior. This man in his infirmity represents every man who cannot make their own way to God, who cannot come to God in their own terms. But thirdly, this man's poverty also teaches us a lesson. We're told about this man that not only not only was he Mr. Nobody, because his name isn't even mentioned when Zebra first introduces him to the king. The king, he doesn't even mention him. He just says, a son of Jonathan is living in Lodibar. You know what that name means? It means nowhere, nothing, no word, no pasture, nothing. There's nowhere there. Lodibar is empty space. It's nowheresville. Here is Mr. Nobody. He has no name at the beginning of the chapter. Mr. Nobody from Nowheresville. Here is a man who has lost his identity. He's lost his inheritance. He's lost what you would think was rightfully coming to him as the child of a king. I identify with this man. Let me tell you how I identify with him. You want to hear this? You do. Uh, my surname is Golliger. So both sides of my family, I should really be in a better place than I am. Just want you to know that right now. I've been in therapy for years and it hasn't helped me. No, you can see that. So my name, Golliger, comes from the Gaelic, the Irish, O'Gallahober, something like that. I can't speak Gaelic. Nobody wants to do that anyway. Uh, and uh, the interesting thing is that my forebear was a king of Ireland between 642 and 654. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? But the royal blood is still there, as you can see, to this day. <laughs> Yes, indeed. I just told you that before you told me. On the other side of my family, we come from the Fraser clan, and Sir James Fraser was made a baron 
and in, was given loads of land in the north of Scotland, real great pasture land, whole swathe of it near Loch Ness, massive area, beautiful part of the world, and uh, that was a long time ago. And the land got, you know, got sold and withered down until about the 1940s, 50s, uh, when somebody died in testate, and uh, the lawyers took then 25 years to try and sort it out. And by the time they'd spent 25 years, there was very little left that they could give to anybody. And they found everybody in the world had any kind of relationship to these people. And I lost my inheritance. I just went, feel sorry for me? I understand how Mephibosheth felt. <laughs> Here is a poor man. He's lost his inheritance. And I want, you to see, I want you to see the parallel, you see, because all of us in this room have royal blood in us. All of us are made in the image of Adam, our first parent. He was the first king ever, the first human king ever. He was given an estate par excellence. He was given Eden, the garden of God. He was given prospects of extending that garden, filling the earth with image bearers of God, extending the garden until it filled the whole earth. What did he do? He blew it. We lost the garden. We lost the garden. We lost our inheritance. And we joined the rest of the human family running away from God, running away from the God who made us. The object of the king's kindness is a man who's lost his estate, a man who is helpless, and a man who is an enemy. But I want you to notice, thirdly, the measure of the king's kindness. I started off by saying that God had promised David that he would build a house for David. And here we find the beginning of this in, in the story of this man, because this man experiences a brand new creation a whole new change in his circumstances, a revolution in his fortunes. It starts when he's brought into the presence of the king. Now, the interesting thing is, read it again, and you'll see that we're not told in the story here, the way it's presented to us, we're not told how the king found out his name. Now, you say, he could have done this, he could have asked, he would have been told, whatever. We're not told that, and we're not told that for a reason, because we're to think about David in his position as the king. And here's what happens. The man is brought before David and he's scared. You'd be scared. You belong to the wrong house. You, know. you belong to the ousted royal family. If you know your history, you know what happens to people from the previous regime. Usually they disappear. And you're expecting that this is going to happen to you. You're expecting to be brought into the presence of the king, told to kneel down, and somebody will come up to the back of you with a, with a gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Or have I been watching too much born movies? I don't know. That's how I imagine it happening. Anyway, I think that was going, something like that was going through the mind of Mephibosheth as he comes before King David. And as you read the story, this is what happened. David comes to him, and he says what? Mephibosheth. I don't know how long David practiced that, but he said Mephibosheth. He said his name. And the significance, of course, is this. Here is the king naming him. Here is the king saying his name. Here is the king establishing a connection, making a relationship with this man. Here is the king 
taking the initiative of grace towards him, what's going to come next? And as you think about David, the covenanted king of Israel, saying the name of this man, we're to think about our great king, our covenant Lord God, who comes to each one of us who are his people, and he says, your name. He says, your name. Until the Bible says, the Lord knows them that are his. Did you know that? Did you know that you could be sitting in this building this morning and you're new, you're on your own? And you're thinking to yourself, no one in this room knows my name. And you're wrong. The Lord knows your name. And when you're ushered into the presence of King Jesus, he'll be able to say your name because you, by name, are significant to him, loved by him. He treasures you in his heart. He knows his own by name, Mephibosheth. Just be grateful that's not your name, but he knows your name. And what's he to expect? Well, you know, he did expect perhaps death, danger. Instead, he finds protection. He finds protection. David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you steadfast love for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Has he reason to fear? Yeah. Is he in danger? Yes, he is. Does David have the power to destroy him? Yes, he has. What does David say to him? Fear not. I love those accounts in the New Testament where angels appear to people. And whatever they appear to people, they always have to say to people, fear not. Because angels are really scary, you know. They don't just have nighties on or nightgowns on, you know. These are scary beings. And when the Lord Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection, he appears to them and he has to say to them, fear not. And when he appears to John and Patmos and the book of Revelation, when he appears in all his splendor and glory as the ascended Lord, he says to John, Fear not, because he comes to drive out your fears. A lot of your fear has to do with your conscience. A lot of your fear has to do with the things you know which separate you from him, banish you from his presence, and he comes to you and he says, Sinner, fear not. That's dealt with. That's dealt with. On the basis of his covenant, he comes to show steadfast love to you. Protection. Restoration. Do you notice that? The king restores to him. Let me read it to you. Uh, In verse 7. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Gets the land. He also gets a little army of people, Ziba and co, to come and manage the land and produce rent to give to him. He gets even more than just the land. He gets more than he could have ever asked or thought. And just as this man has the land restored to him, we get our inheritance restored to us. That's why all of that inheritance language that we looked at when we were in, in First Peter, the inheritance that is coming to the believer is the inheritance that was promised in the beginning. Not the earth is the inheritance of the saints. The meek inherit what? The meek inherit the earth. That's coming to us. The new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're looking forward to. Our parents lost a garden, 
We are going to inherit the earth. Restored. And then thirdly, do you notice adoption? Adoption. Not only does David spare his life, but he says this to David. You shall eat at my table always, verse 7. And then we, we read in verse 11. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He's adopted. He belongs there. David not only delivers him from the shadow of death, but he prepares a table for Mephibosheth in the presence of his enemies. Isn't that amazing? And he is bid to come and sit, and he lives in the style of the son of the king, sitting at the king's table, surrounded by the favor of the king, and he's given a permanent place and permanent residence in the king's table. That's what God does for us. He brings us and makes us part of his family. He adopts us as his children. We become sons of God. Yes, ladies, girls, you become sons of God too. That's a bit weird. But you become sons of God. That is your legal status. Why is that important? Why is it important for you to know you're not simply a daughter of the king, that you are a son of the king? Ladies, it is because the son gets the inheritance. And all of God's people, whether they're male or female, are sons of God in the sense that they become inheritors of the estate. You sit at the table. You get the inheritance. And a little foretaste of it. You come and you sit at a table with bread and wine as God's signal to you. You're going to sit with him in the kingdom of God. And you're going to feast at his table. And you're going to enjoy all that he has to give you. Now do you think I've interpreted Mephibosheth's story. Do you think I've, I was being deliberate there, by the way, in case you thought I'd got that wrong. Mephibosheth's <laughs> story. Do you think I got this? Yeah, I got this all wrong. Let me read you from Micah. Micah, prophet, chapter 4. In that day, looking to the gospel era, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. And gather those who have been driven away, driven away, and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And when the Lord Jesus comes... What is his report card on what he's been doing? The lame walk. You see, there's a reason why it's repeated. Beginning and the end of this story, Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. Even after he's sitting at the king's table, he's still lame. Because the Messiah hasn't come yet. This is a picture, but it's not the real deal. David is a signal of the Messiah, but he isn't the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, there's no lame at the table. In John chapter 1, the character of Jesus is described as one who, who embodies the very character of God, full of grace and truth. I think echoing the language of Exodus chapter 34, where God himself, Yahweh, is introduced as the one who is abounding in 
love, hesed, and faithfulness, grace and truth, hesed, and faithfulness are all wrapped up in Jesus. He is the faithful one. He is the one of steadfast love. And he is the one who in the night he was betrayed, having loved his own who were in the world, showed them the full extent of his love by going to the cross, dying for our sins and rising again. I want to ask you this morning if you've experienced the chesed of God, the loving kindness of God, the covenanted kindness, the steadfast love of the Lord that never fails. Have you experienced it? Or are you still the enemy? Are you still the helpless? Are you still the disinherited? Robert Murray McShane was a Scotsman. He died when he was about 29, I think. He lived a short life that was packed for the glory of God. And he wrote a poem called Jehovah Tsekenyu. Jehovah Tsekenyu means the Lord our righteousness. It was a testimony. I once was a stranger to grace and to God and knew not my danger and felt not my Lord. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Tsekenyu was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me, by light from on high, then legal fears, the law's fears, shook me, and I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety, no self in self could I see. Jehovah Tsekenyu, my Savior, must be. My terrors all vanished before that sweet name. My guilty fears banished with boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah Tsekenyu is all things to me. Let's pray together. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to run to our better than David, our great Lord Jesus, in our helplessness and our weakness, to take with faint hands and perhaps quivering hearts the free grace that he offers us in the gospel, we pray in his strong name. Amen.